This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. You know, we have the same mission as, you know, these first responders do, and that's just when we're here to serve and help. And so... If we can do anything in that regard, you know, we've even helped out by actually being on the ground during disasters and we can help just being there. You know, we like to be put to work. Welcome to episode 47 of EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, with you, and we're going to be talking about shelter. In Maslow's hierarchy of need, shelter is one of the top three needs that humans have. We learned this eh, probably back in middle school or high school. But today we're talking to JJ about shelter systems and actually some more. We really kind of get into some really cool conversations here, so I hope that you'll enjoy this. I found JJ's company when I was looking for a rapid shelter system for my needs. And I thought, wow, this product was really cool, so I wanted to share it with our community. And JJ was so eager to start that uh, I did not even have a good chance to do a proper introduction for him. So the start of this uh, podcast is going to be a little kind of abrupt, but please bear with that. And I think you'll see why, because JJ's knowledge and excitement about shelter systems and just really in general, helping people in disasters uh, will come through. In our Ask Todd segment, the inbox, there was a question from Matt Carr from Ohio. And he asked, what is the best way to break into emergency management? Well, Matt, that's a great question. And I think the best way is to get yourself out there and get involved. You know, join the International Association of Emergency Managers, IAEM, and get to meet people on the job. Volunteer with groups such as um, the American Red Cross or Team Rubicon or the Salvation Army, those type of things. You can join our Facebook group and you can ask questions there to the practitioners that are, are out there right now. We have some really talented members in our Facebook group. So that being said, for everybody, check out our Facebook group. You know, uh, we also have we're on, in, we're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the social media platforms. So if you want to follow what we're doing, love to have you guys uh, follow us along. Also, go to our website www.emweekly.com, and you can also subscribe uh, to be an informed subscriber of the Ian Weekly podcast. Also. Check out the website as well and answer our poll question. We have a monthly poll question that comes up, uh, obviously changes every month. And this is kind of fun and we like to see what people's opinions are about trends and things that are happening in emergency management. And this data is it's unscientific, but uh, we'd love to have the, to see what the people of emergency management are thinking. And that's why we ask those poll questions. This is something fun to do. Well, let's hear what JJ has to say about shelters. Working in emergency management is kind of one of the caveats of, of the industry that I, I started in. Originally, I started working for a company called Western Shelter Systems that makes a great uh, shelter product that was the standard for FEMA, urban search and rescue teams, and um, also the NDMS, uh, Health and Human Services Disaster Medical Assistance Teams, the DMATs. Cool. And uh, originally, that got its introduction from the U.S. Forestry and the wildfires. And so coming out of college, I did my first internship for that company here in Eugene, Oregon. And that's kind of what introduced me to the whole uh, disaster response world. Cool. That time I was working with, you know, disaster medical teams, um, USAR teams, uh, a lot of the VA hospitals for surge capacity. Um, you know, then there was the, the influx of the pandemic flus and that kind of isolation needs. And really, when I stepped away from that company in 2012, uh, my goal was to start a company that was more focused towards the immediate response, 
the rapid deployment, the first 72 hours. And that's kind of how we, we just got into designing the product of the ASAP rapid shelter system. And coincidentally, the, one of the, you know, industries that primarily took real interest and focus in it right off the bat was the emergency management side. <laughs> and so we kind of did a shift change and really our focus of building products really for first responders, but a lot of them are kind of with emergency management in mind first. And we kind of hold ourselves unique to the fact that we're one of the first companies to really start our business and our, our response with products built and fitted, you know, thinking of emergency management deployment in mind, um, rather than taking a product that was already in the market and trying to make it adapt towards emergency management and the rapid response. We're trying to be a company that started with that goal. That's great. You know, I mean, some of my experience with, uh, these type of tents has been in the military. And I started out in the days when we had the GP tents, you know, the big canvas tents, you had to roll up sides and stuff like this. And then uh, the drash tent kind of came out and, uh, uh, and, and that was sort of kind of cool. And, uh, and I see the, the evolution growing for sure. So, and the product that you have looks really easy to deploy. So tell me like, you know, some of the, not necessarily the customers that you're using, but some of the the deployments that your your stuff has been on, and what what are the challenges uh, that has been associated with getting your stuff out to people? To start with, uh, probably I'll, I'll, I'll kind of hit on the issue of you getting the product out there. You know, grant funding isn't what it used to be, so that makes it you know pretty difficult. Or there's the the potential saturation of the market where a lot of agencies already bought equipment in the you know starting back after 2001 after 9/11 when there was that big ramp up of the USAID, uh, not, excuse me, not USAID, but USAID grants, right. um, Homeland Security grants. And, and so a lot of those agencies, you know, bought what was available. And so now they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, here's a product that we want, but you know, we already have, you know, the shelters and base camp equipment for deployment. But a lot of the scenarios that a lot of the agencies are falling into is that it's that immediate response that they need where they don't know if it's going to be a, a small response, for, you know, type one or type two or type three NIMS level event at the beginning. So they just need to get out there with something quick. And so we were really going out there competing with the easy ups, you know, saying, okay, that's not enough shelter. <laughs> you don't need this big shelter that takes hours to set up that you would deploy for a long-term event. So we need something that was in between those two. So that's why we designed the ASAP rapid shelter. That was a two person rapid setup that would give you all of the long-term needs of a, of a longer legacy shelter. Like you mentioned with the draft shelters, um, the HGTs, Alaska structure, Western Shelter, they're all great brands, all great products. But when you need that fit, that's going to give you something rapid and immediate disaster response. Something like ours that two people can arrive, you know, with a minivan or a pickup truck, get get their part, pull the, pull the equipment down from the trailer or the truck, two people set it up. And the reality is, is the response level of emergency management agencies is not like there's this huge army to come rolling out there. It's, you know, it's a small amount of people. And those people have specialties and skill sets that aren't meant for being experts at setting up tents. They need to be able to get out there and set something up that's quick and easy that can now become a focal point or a command center. It can be um, intended for surge capacity. It can be for triage. Yeah, you know, it's got limitless need you know, or functionality, but that's kind of what we were looking at there. And so, you know, I would say that that would probably make it the hardest part is getting it because of the funding. Mm-hmm. But the way I see the market turning is that, you know, and it may be a conversation for another day or with other you know, industry leaders and decision makers. But, you know, what I'm seeing now is kind of more of a deconfliction of past equipment. You know, people are looking at what they bought and things are getting old. They've been on the shelves for a long time. They didn't get used. Um, You know, batteries are dead. Trailers are flat tires. You know, equipment's 
just not functioning because it's been sitting around waiting for that event that didn't come around. And just the maintenance and the training on that equipment also is, is pretty cumbersome. So trying to deconflict, maybe take some of that equipment, donate it to other agencies that need it, buy newer equipment or have both types of equipment in your cash, and then allowing you to have an equipment piece that isn't going to be very draining on your staff or your volunteer base when you go to do a training over the weekend. I'm spending all weekend setting up tents and, you know, tearing them down on Sunday is not a very fun event once you've done it two or three times. (laughs) And that's not the main reason to come out there for training. There's a lot more, uh, very more important aspects to training, especially for your volunteers and your your paid hourly employees to come out there and really focus on the life-saving factors, not the setup of a tent. So that's where, you know, we really found an opportunity for us to enter a market that, you know, isn't necessarily an easy market to penetrate. Right. You know, when I was working for a city, we had our cert team go and help the state with a drill that they were doing. And the, the cert team's job was to set the uh, the tents up that the state has um, over at the uh, Joint Forces training base there in Los Alamitos. And, you know, they, they enjoyed what they did, I guess, was a fun time for them. But at the end of the day, that's what the state needed is an army of people. And literally, there was like, I think, 45, 50 people came to set tents up. And you know, because in some cases they needed to move these things around with uh, forklifts and things like this. It just becomes cumbersome. And I couldn't imagine taking a tractor trailer of tents someplace where you have to bring a forklift as well and have everything set up in a timely manner. I did it, like I said, in the military. But, you know, again, mm-hmm. we had <laughs> we literally had Marines to, to move things around for us, right? So that being said, these tents in the video that I saw on your website was very, very simple to set up. And I like the idea that, uh, you know, with the heater in the one with the winter exercise that the, the, you guys did in mm-hmm. Alberta. And then also the, uh, you know, air conditioning and just using the the simple uh, Honda generator that you guys use for power makes a lot of sense. I've seen some really high end expensive, you know, hundred thousand dollar shelter things that, uh, you know, again, takes a little bit of time to set up and, and whatnot. Uh, but this seems to be a little bit more affordable and uh, easy to use. And, and that seems to be what your design was. And again, when you guys do these exercises, how many people, and you said two people, but realistically to set up a whole camp, how many people are you talking about? Is it, can two people do it really? And, and or is, is that just uh... <laughs> I mean, the reality is, is, you know, two can do it. You know, I recommend when it actually comes to setting up one shelter by itself, I really wouldn't like to see more than three people involved just because you start to get to an element where there's too many hands involved mm-hmm. and people start pulling things the wrong way or people get too far ahead of themselves. And so really it's a, it's two or three person is, you know, makes it that much easier. It doesn't make it a whole lot faster, but it helps. Um, but if you set up a whole camp system and you got, you know, 10 shelters that need to be set up, you know, this summer we went down and helped with the big fire here in Oregon and uh, Oregon Department of Forestry needed some extra shelters for sleeping their night crews. And we came down and set up uh, 10 shelters, air conditioning and power with four guys. And it took us about maybe 40 minutes. That's uh, amazing. So for a hundred person sleeping camp in 40 minutes, that's, you know, not really heard of. Now that's not our main focus is setting up tents for sleeping. That's just one of the functions it can be used for. Right. When you look at like our, our video there, that's a great opportunity we had with some of the, the UN INSROG or International Search and Rescue ISAR teams. Um, they were working with Canada and, and the UK and Ireland uh, up in Alberta. And that group alone is one of the, the segments of that we've really been able to tap into because you have agencies that are really looking at their international deployment capability, their ability to fly ready package, you know, using 463L pallets and being able to be ready to go lightweight and really trying to reduce the amount of 
cubic volume and weight that they're bringing with them. And so our shelter makes a great fit for that, especially with our accessory equipment line of, you know, deployable shelter or shower systems that go inside the shelter. You know, we can turn it into a decon two lane, three lane or tactical decon shower system inside the shelter. It can, you know, be used for sleeping command center. We have a new hub system that we've just launched where it allows you to make a full complex system where you can go into one shelter, connect to the hub, and you can branch off to three or four other three or four other shelters in all directions and build a system that can be, you know, 10, 15, 30 shelters connected. So allowing you to do that bigger field hospital type setup or larger command operation setup is why we designed that system to meet those needs and requests from our, from our industry, but in our customer base, you know, and then you look at your more local type agencies that are binary equipment and you have North Carolina emergency management, you know, most every county in North Carolina has at least one, uh, regardless of the size of the county, they have at least an ASAP shelter to be able to, you know, respond to an emergency need. And then, you know, regional or, or statewide help can, can assist down the road within the following hours. But everyone has the same equipment. So everyone's interoperable. Mm. In California, we have Caltrans or Cal, California Department of Transportation. I believe they have 30 or more shelters of our shelters uh, spread across the state uh, with air conditioning and heating. Um, you even see a lot of these agencies that'll turn around and use the shelter for heating or cooling for, for rehab, EMS rehab, fire rehab. And so then at the same time, they're using a lot of those accessories, the heaters and the air conditioning units, and they may even respond to an elderly facility or a special needs facility where they can actually bring heat or, or air conditioning to that facility. If they have a power outage or they, you know, we're talking, looking at these extreme weather with the cold, you know, if that building isn't able to keep up with the demand that they need for heat to keep those patients instead of moving them, which is usually, you know, the last resort because that transportation of those, the, those needed, the special needs people is kind of really more of a dangerous response rather than being able to keep them in place and bring the heat to them. So we were just talking about uh, different agencies and, and how some of the agencies are using accessories like the heaters and the air conditioning units to deploy those to assist uh, special needs facilities like elderly homes or other types of special needs facilities where they can actually bring the heater and plug that right into the building to be able to heat special needs victims in place rather than moving and transporting them, which really at the end of the day would be more of a, of a disaster if they had to move those patients because a lot of those people don't do well in special needs or facilities. Those types of patients don't do very well when they're transported from one location to the next. So being able to keep them in place, bring the heat and the air conditioning to them or the power to that building or even any type of government agency building uh, or schools, if they have a power outage or their heater goes out, instead of you know canceling school or, or canceling work or making people work in the cold or in the hot, they can bring those accessory items like air conditioning, heating, be able to keep, you know, heat or cool those, those buildings in place and be able to keep operations going. So finding ways to really utilize that product that they're purchasing, bringing more justification to the grant purchase by saying, Hey, this isn't just a shelter or just a heater and air conditioning for these uses, but really it's a, a more of a, a global approach to being able to respond to any type of emergency response. But it also takes that agency and those personnel to be creative and, you know, be thinking about different ways they can use their equipment, think outside the box and, alternative options rather than, you know, resorting to moving patients or canceling or closing, you know, schools or buildings down. 
Yeah, that's actually one of those things that every time that we look at doing products for whatever they are, you know, the question always is, is how often are we going to use them? Even if it's like a, you know, say a new truck or whatever, you know, how often are we going to utilize that, that vehicle, you know, and whatnot. And so to be able to have something that's versatile like that, that's multi-use, that's a really, it's kind of becomes an easier sell to number one, your leadership, and then number two, to the taxpayers, if it's your taxpayer funds and stuff like that. There's a lot of times where people have thought, you know, I'd really like to have a shelter up, but you know, the easy up's not enough and bringing in one of our bigger, larger, heavier shelters really isn't an option for this time frame. or the personnel is not here to be able to do it. Or the one guy who really knows how to set up the shelters isn't here. Right. But with our equipment, the amount of time you debate whether or not to even set it up, it's just might as well just set it up. If it's there, pop it up, use it. Um, even the fact that it's so easy to set up makes it, you know, on the turnaround backside when you're packing up or when you have to go back and you have to, you know, refurb the equipment and clean it up and repack it for the next use. Um, that is also not that laborsome. And so when they return back to the warehouse, it's not that hard to get that shelter out, pop it up, clean it, dry it off, put it back away, and it's ready to go the next time. Right. A lot of people are thinking that step two down the road. You know, one of the things that just kind of popped in my head as far as a really good use here in California specifically, in Southern California, is using it for the point of uh, the pod, the point of distribution I mm-hmm. can't speak the point of distribution the pods and the idea here is like you know a lot of times they're just in parking lots you know mm-hmm. and that's the same thing when with the pods using the easy ups is what seems to be used a lot and there's never enough shade associated with that and or when it's hot out when we're doing them because we normally do them uh around flu season in october mm-hmm. and, and there's not enough sometimes you need to have the cooling center so i think that's a, a really good use for that for your product but yeah, you know, the reality is, is I look at it and say, okay, well, you know, first, you know, bonus when you set up a shelter like ours versus an easy up or just having a shelter period is it, it really sets a precedent of, you know, here we are, or it's a billboard. It's so a focal point. It's, you know, when you see that 10 up, you realize that's somewhere you need to go versus, you know, you see a table and some chairs and some people standing around. That's probably where you need to go. But having that tent set up and some signage really says, okay, destination point. Right. And then, you know, having that shelter, the ability to heat or cool it, but also, you know, the most important to me is you're thinking about your employees or your, your first responders or your volunteers. You know, it's a lot easier to get those people to come back and keep donating their time. Cause you know, when you think about emergency management, everyone wears a lot of hats mm-hmm. and everyone's really sacrificed a lot of their personal time. And when you're looking thinking of those aspects and, you know, how do you keep those people coming back? It's if you can, you know, make their conditions a little bit better, just even, you know, adding air conditioning, you know, that really says something that, that one, you're thinking of them and that the agency is there to, you know, assist, but also it's giving them a lot more of a better experience so that they should return and keep volunteering that time. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing how just some of those uh, small creature comforts uh, make a difference and want to, to keep going mm-hmm. forward, you know, air conditioning or heat in the, in the winter air conditioning for sure in the summertime, especially when it's, you know, like in Arizona and or California when it's a hundred and something degrees out and hot. Yeah, we started using mil-spec blackout for our shelters, really, because a lot of the times that, that some of the agencies are using them for sleeping for, you know, their staff that are working the night shift so that they can sleep better during the day, just be able to have a black tent inside. Those are the kind of things that we try to add as features where we're really listening to the customer and, and just trying to offer that extra step of detail that really makes it that much more comfortable. How easy is it to transport these items? I was thinking more along the lines of like, say, like a Team Rubicon or American Red Cross or uh, something like that, that 
they move all over the place. Is this something that you can shove into a vehicle pretty quickly or get into an airplane without too much uh, issue to transport? Yeah, you know, that's uh, definitely been going back and forth on my favorite vehicle for our, our demos and when we transport around. And funny thing is my vehicle of choice is a uh, is any type of, you know, Chrysler minivan or any type of those minivans that fold flat because I can get two shelters in there. Pickup trucks are great, especially if they have extended beds, so you can still close the back end. Mm-hmm. But with the minivan, you know, I can put one in there and leave one of the back seats open. So I can, you know, still drive around with three people or I could take, you know, all the seats down in the back is drive around with two people and have two shelters in there or some accessory equipment. When you look at some of the cargo minivans, there's like Caltrans, they'll take two shelters, two air conditioners, two generators, or they'll take two heaters and, and two generators. So, you know, when you think about that, you know, you're not bringing an extra trailer because of the size of the generators uh, or the shelters and the size of the HVAC or the heater, you can get away with a much smaller generator. Like you're mentioning with the Hondas, you know, getting away with one of those, that's a one person or two person, you know, maneuverable asset rather than something that's, you know, dedicated to a trailer and one vehicle that needs to bring that along gives you a lot more flexibility. And it's something that two people can park, unload everything and set it all up, you know, still again in just minutes. So definitely as far as, you know, local transportation, um, especially, you know, in, in, you know, local regional needs. And then when you're looking at the international, like on a 463L pallet, if it was just our shelters, you could load up to uh, 16 of our shelters on one 463L pallet uh, for flyable, you know, fly ready. We have teams down in uh, Colombia and South America um, working with the, through the U.S. Embassy and some of the special operations, uh, military and, and police forces down there. They'll actually fly them around. They could put uh, two to four shelters inside of a, a Blackhawk helicopter and transport it that way into remote locations. You know, the other types of teams that are using it for the USAID teams from Fairfax and Los Angeles, they're using them for their international deployments. And I think that was probably the first U.S. international deployment would have been Nepal. That was um, when Fairfax took it. Uh, their search and rescue team took that out there, VATF-1. So yeah, so there's, you know, just multiple uses. I mean, it was down in Mexico, several of the islands, Puerto Rico. Uh, a lot of the equipment got deployed uh, this this last summer. And it seems to be just about now with any international disaster at that, that, that large level, whether it's one or multiple agencies are taking our equipment along with them. And and for us in this industry, and, you know, as you can probably are very familiar, it's a very small community, uh, first responders, even, you know, domestically and internationally. Like there's, uh, it's a really small community. And so it's one or two degrees separation and word of mouth is by far our biggest marketing tool to getting our name out there and, and getting uh, people coming to us. Um, we try to get to them first, but until people really say, Hey, this person over here at this agency or vice versa, you know, they said, Hey, you need to take a look at this, you know, ASAP rapid shelter. They could see the video. They could see a live demo. They, they might see it a lot of times, you know, unfortunately people see a shelter and they, they just think it's a shelter right. unless they actually see it go up and see how fast it is. They don't realize it's something that might be applicable for them. But usually it's that word of mouth, that reference from another colleague in a different agency or even within their own agency that says, Hey, you know, I, I saw this or was deployed with it. It really is fast and easy. That's what gets people um, interested and really the hook as much as we show videos and things like that. It, it's hard to really sell it until it's that re- that reference, that word of mouth. That that's the biggest selling point. Right, and that's you know why I was glad that you came to us and asked for us to interview with you because um, the opportunity for us to be able to to get the word out there through someone like yourself with the, the experience and and the list of people that you've been having podcasts with, it obviously shows that you know what you're talking about and and just having this conversation with you, I enjoy myself. So cool. 
so you stated earlier that you were supporting um, a fire in Oregon with your tents. And that just made me think, do you guys have a just-in-time ordering thing? So like, say, the fires in San Bernardino, for instance, and they didn't have tents, would they be able to order something from you quickly? Or is it something that takes a while to, uh, to get up and running? Well, generally, we have some inventory. We try to maintain an inventory level of 10 to 20 shelters. But, you know, the, the reality is, is when you're producing here locally in, in we're in Oregon and the size of some of the orders that are coming through that are planned projects. It, what allows us when we have that disaster is, you know, we might have a current project where we're building 10 or 20 shelters for an agency. And then we get, you know, something happens and someone needs something immediately. Usually we can call those agencies and explain what's happening and ask for a little extension on their delivery timeframe so that we can make the demand for those immediate needs and those disasters that are current uh, in front of them. So Usually there's always an ability to get some shelters, whether it's you know, a handful of you know, one to five shelters or you know, 10 or more. Then we also have a pretty large demo stock that um, we have access of. So sometimes even just letting people borrow shelters um, in a moment's notice and just saying, hey, you know, just borrow it, pay for the transportation. And at the end of it, you know, if you're interested and you want some, there's no expectations, but I think once you use it, you'll probably come back. So we kind of just have that type of uh, mentality where it's, you know, we're just here to serve and help. You know, we have the same mission as, you know, these first responders do. And that's just we we're here to serve and help. And so if we can do anything in that regard, you know, we've even helped out by actually being on the ground during disasters and we can help just being there. You know, we like to be put to work. So um, we've been on exercises and trainings that have turned into real events, right. um, especially uh, very common emergency management world or some of the law enforcement world is, you know, is a, a land search and rescue experience, uh, just type of regular SAR. Or, you know, all of a sudden there's, we're doing a training and there's a, a missing victim and it turns in from exercise training to actual deployment. You know, the shelter becomes a, a useful point for a warming center for the volunteers or, uh, or even a cooling center, or it turns into a, you know, they're used as a command center or a communications shelter. And it's happened several times, actually, surprisingly. Yeah. How much power is in, is in one of your shelters? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. The modern emergency manager wears lots of hats. So how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It's just a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. Pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises are what they offer. Spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations and more. Exercises come from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jumpstart on your exercise program today and visit TTX Vault at www.ttxvault.com. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. 
Welcome back from that break. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our sponsors. And please check them out and uh, let them know that EM Weekly sent you. Because without them, we could not bring you the quality product that we bring you today. How much power is in, is in one of your shelters? Like as far as, do you guys have things pre-plumbed or do you have to just bring extension cords? How does that work? Well, we do actually offer some uh, battery packages for an off-grid package. So we do have a, we call it PX800, which is a custom kit that we put a couple of the um, off-the-shelf Goal Zero uh, 400 batteries. We also have some other custom kits where we use some custom uh, design packages by us for lithium um, batteries. So, so they're just a bigger battery, but it's lithium, so it's lighter. But the lithium gets into that issue of, of air transport. So right. not as many agencies are liking lithium, even though they love the weight and they love the the maintenance of it because you don't have to charge it all the time. But the reality is, is it's more expensive and it has that one distinction that is you can't just put on a plane and fly it. <laughs> Whereas, you know, with the, the lead acid batteries like you find in some of the Goal Zero batteries that we use, you can, you know, transport those around. You can take them on as carry-on luggage. Uh, they're heavy, but you can still, you know, fly with them. The benefit of that though is that you know the technology has come along as much as our shelter has come along you know led lighting has come along it's really advanced in the last 15 years uh, since i've been in this industry the price points you know really reasonable now and so by changing your lights to an led function we use a simple string light with leds and and that function one it reduces the cubic weight and volume of the old fluorescent tube lights and it, the cost is way reduced and the and the weights reduced by 75 hmm. percent and so when you're looking at that now, okay, now you're an LED, so you can get away with a small generator or in our situation, a small battery. The Goal Zero 400 will, you know, will run one of our shelter lights, uh, string light systems for up to 36 hours. Um, and that's if you're running it all day. Right. Then you can plug a solar panel into it and you may never need to actually plug into a generator. And you still have enough power to power laptops and cell phones, which the reality is at the end of the day is one of the most important things now is having some type of battery or power to charge cell phones communications has become one of the most important factors in the deployment. Yes. Whether it's for the responders themselves or the, the victims, you know, being able to give someone a charged cell phone could lead to someone having the ability to call for help. Um, or, you know, so they get to a shelter. Sometimes all they need is a, you know, a phone so they can call um, and get a hold of a family member. So they have a place to go rather than stay in the shelters, you know, and there's not pay phones on every corner anymore. So <laughs> getting someone to give you a phone is, is also, you know, you know, and it's not just an easy feat either. Right. Everyone's dealing with dead phones, um, which was very similar, um, very realistic scenario that happened in Puerto Rico. Right. Well, it happened in Sandy too, right? I mean, you remember to see the, oh, yeah. uh, the pictures of everybody standing around a, a cord, you know, mm-hmm. trying to trying to do their cell phones. You yeah, know, I can f- see that being a, a pod distribution point nowadays in the future when you have power outages like that. And you can have a location where you're giving out water and just having batteries and generators to charge cell phones. People can come and park and charge your cell phone for an hour and, you were good for the next day. Right. Yeah, it's so true. It is so true. That's not even, that's not probably something we probably should think about in our plans of, of uh, recharging centers. Mm-hmm. The, you know, I was thinking about the, uh, when you're talking about your LEDs, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I think it's Big Angus is the name of the company who makes uh, outdoor products. And they actually have a backpacking tent that uh, has LED lights embedded inside of them. And you can flick them, turn them on when you get there so instead of having to carry a, uh, a lantern with you inside the inside your tent. You have uh, those lights that are inside them. So yeah, you're right. They're they're getting smaller and and easier to use, and that's really kind of cool. Oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, I just pulled them up on my website and I see what you're talking about. And yeah, I mean, that's the reality. Is depending on how, what kind of lighting need you need. You know, our lighting is set up so that it's you know full lighting, whether it was a medical operation or just a command operation. But 
you know, the reality is sometimes some of our teams, um, they just need one little LED light just enough to be able to see their way around the tent. I mean, you know, one of our batteries can give them enough light with, for seven, 10 days. If that's all they're using. That's great. That really is great. Those are things that like when you start talking about things you don't think about, right? Like those little small, small details that you just go, okay, I need a shelter. Boom. And then you go, oh, okay. And it's nighttime. Now I walk around the shelter. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, where's my flashlight? Oh, I got this little flashlight, you know, as a small little details like that, that really make a big difference. And again, back to the idea of making it comfortable for your responders and to your volunteers that are comfortable in that time when they're, when they're stressed out, you know, when they need a place to crash and, and just to relax and something like that, just those little lights and the ability to have the warmth and the or the uh, air conditioning uh, makes a huge difference. So I do think your yeah. product is, is outstanding yeah. that way. Part of my requirements for my R&D and sales team is, you know, we, we have to go to exercises and sleep in tents. We do our own locally so we can come up with, you know, new designs and changes. And, and we try to do it with customers because to me, it's, you know, I, my team's got to be willing to sleep and, and be comfortable in these if we think that's what we're delivering to the customer. Do you have a way to make the cots more comfortable? <laughs> you know, we actually, uh, we, we entered into a partnership with Disco Beds. Uh, they've been around for a long time. The, on the four supplier list, they're one of the probably most purchased cop, bed, you know, bunk bed systems out there. And one of the things I like about their bed is that it's, you know, it can be a bunk bed or it can be an individual cot. Um, and they have some pretty wide options. So you have a little more space to sleep on. And ultimately what we do is we partner with them so that we could start using our own kind of a mesh, uh, nylon dipped fiberglass mesh that we actually use so that it's a little more comfortable. What happens with that material is that when you sleep on it, it warms up and it contorts your body shape. Hmm. So it kind of gets comfortable, more comfortable as you're sleeping in it. And then when you, you know, jump off the bed in the, in the morning, it actually will return back to its normal fit so that the next person can actually sleep in it and it'll conform to their body. Um, at the same time, it's also a material that's easier to decontaminate and wash. So, um, but I think that's to me, you know, I hear you on the comfort part and you know, the reality is you can use cushions and things like that. And those are great and they'll make it more comfortable. But once again, you're, by doing that, you're responding, you're, you're kind of going against the idea, which is you're adding more volume and bulk. So a lot of people try to stay away from cushions, mm. you know, small inflatable mattresses are great too, depending on the climate. You never want to sleep on an inflatable mattress when the floor is ice cold, because that'll just uh, turn that air mattress into an ice cold air mattress. And people don't realize they're actually losing their body heat by sleeping mm. on an air mattress on a cold floor. As long as people are aware of their, you know, that situation, not, you know, not allowing that to be the case, um, you just need some kind of a insulation between the floor and your mattress. But when you look at, you know, pack down volume, uh, sometimes an air mattress really is one of the best options to go with. Any type of cot or framed bed system is going to take up a lot of space and it's going to add weight. But if you have this ability to transport that and you have the space, um, I definitely like the disco beds, whether it's our version or just one of their disco beds. Um, it's a great cot. It's super durable. I think the rating is around 350 pounds per level. And, you know, and it's a great price too. <laughs> That's the best. I was just joking about making the cost more comfortable because I never thought that would happen. And JJ, you have an answer for it. That is the greatest answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I mean, you know, it's one of those things in the industry that we don't sell, you know, we don't sell thousands of beds. We sell a few hundred a year. And it just depends. Either customers already have them or they just they want that full turnkey package and right. they want the shelter. They want the air conditioner. They want the generator. They want the heater. They want the insulation line of the lights, the wiring harness, they'll ask for communications packages. They might want this, you know, command displays, you know, television set up. They want uh, printers in a case. They want, 
you know, they want a full instant command package. They want medical supplies, medical beds, you know, for sleeping, they want the bunk beds. Um, sometimes we even sell, you know, sleeping bags. You know, we don't go out in the market trying to make those products, but if we could find a way where we can kind of alter a package or add some type of a advance or improvement to it, then we like to do that if we can. And so that's how we entered into that uh, partnership with Disco Bed was, you know, being able to provide our kind of thought on the material to be used for the bedding part. And yeah, we actually thought we found something pretty good. And it seems to be, I mean, it's not going to beat your home. It's not going to be better than your home uh, bed, but that's for sure. It's, it's definitely not a, uh, a nice foam mattress that you'd have. But at the end of the day, if you're working really hard and, and you're ready to sleep, it's pretty comfortable. <laughs> that's true. I have crashed out many times. I'm just basically getting my boots off and laying down and crashing out. So yeah, I completely, <laughs> I completely agree with that. You know, it's amazing though that you're, that you guys have the full package deal that you can expand the package or shrink the package to whatever you need. And, and you guys are able to, uh, to really meet those needs. So that's, uh, that's really cool. So JJ, we're coming here to the end here. I do have a couple more questions for you, but the big one here is if you have, what book would you give to somebody who is getting into this business or into leadership? There's, you know, I, I've become, I can't say that I'm a, as well read as I'd like to say of some of my colleagues or friends. And when it comes to this business, I, I, I read a lot of business books. And the surprising part is how many of them actually apply towards emergency management, mm. and just, you know, in general, um, you know, to our business model as well. And, one of the ones that I always come back to, and it's just one of those books I think everyone needs to read is The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. You know, it's not directly emergency management related, but it, it really covers a lot of just, you know, the philosophy of how events and, you know, trends, you know, change. And so when I look at people who are trying to think differently and think outside the box and, and you know, the, the adapters and the, you know, the introducers of products, people in the emergency management world, the ones that really change the way things have been done. Uh, people that are going out there and saying, okay, well, yeah, this is the way everyone's been doing it for, you know, X amount of years, but why haven't we tried to do it this way? Mm-hmm. You know, those innovators that are in the industry that are trying to change, you know, the response, which is ultimately, you know, what we're trying to do. We're trying to come in an industry that says, okay, well, you know, people are using what the military has been doing for X amount of years. Well, maybe that's not the best product or the best fit for what you're trying to do on this, you know, local or regional you know, response. How about you look at something like this that's faster? You know, maybe it's not as strong, but maybe it's, you know, going to have more utility. <laughs> and so getting people to change their look and say, okay, you know, maybe we can do things differently. It's, it's a right to adapt and adopt new technology. I really like that book because it reaches on a level of uh, epidemic, uh, you know, research and social economic uh, trends. So it's a great book. If you haven't read any Malcolm Gladwell books, they're great. Then I always pick up business books. And, you know, I mean, I think like anything, you can read... Uh, See you at the top, or a Zig Ziglar book, or you can read uh, "Think and Grow Rich" uh, by Napoleon Hill, and you're going to read books that you know. I think as leaders, of people that are trying to uh, you know create something as far as you know change a mindset within an agency or uh, even within an industry, I think when you read those kind of books, it it definitely brings leadership mentality. But at the end of the day, I love any type of a uh, you know apocalyptic book. Um, they're great reads. I love your zombie books. I love Walking Dead. I try to imagine what my products would be in, in those scenarios. And I, I like to think that I know where there's a lot of great equipment caches if I was in The Walking Dead. So I know where to pick up some good equipment. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I love those books too. And I was, it, it, they're, for me, they're always, uh, they're always fun to read. Uh, the couple series I like to read, I got the 299 Days was one of them. And um, mm-hmm. like Getting Home is, uh, is another series that was a 
uh, was a fun read to, to, to do. So what was that last one? Getting home. Getting home. It's getting home is yeah. the first book of the series. And there's like a whole series with them. I think there's like five or six books that are associated with it. But yeah, those are, those are a fun book to that. read. Yeah. I think any of those books, you know, are, I just, I don't know. For one, I, I think my imagination lets me run and I, I like to read those books and think about, you know, I don't know how I would respond in those and scenarios. And, and I think there is something there to learn for anyone in the emergency management world that is, you know, involved in that is reading those kind of books uh, just as much as, you know, your, your curriculum type books. Uh, it's going to give you at least some ability to kind of imagine, you know, mm-hmm. you know worst case scenario right. and, you know, how are you going to respond? A lot of things people don't think about is, you know, those, that big, you know, whether it's the uh, Cascadia Falls, you know, event that could happen here or, um, you know, the big event that could happen in California is, you know, when you think of those types of events, that really breaks down all type of training and exercise anyone's really been able to put to use because it's such a large scale event that the reality is a lot of those first responders, they're going to, you know, they're going to be worried about their families first. Right. You know, that changes everything. So who is there to respond? You know, and I think in that type of scenario, you're going to have much more involvement from a military aspect than you would from, you know, your ability is, you know, widespread as you would get from your, your local responders. Now, I think they'll all eventually report within however many hours, but you know, when something like that happens, first, your reaction, first off, is going to be your family. And, and that was evident after events like Katrina and things like that, where, you know, you can't expect, you, you want to expect it, but you're not going to get 100% roll call. That's for sure. Yeah, the statistics say that we're going to have a 40% reduction in the workforce for the first 24 hours. And oh, You're right. Mm-hmm. And eventually everybody will report in. But I mean, it's not that they don't want to get there, but sometimes people can't get in for either, you know, the oh, roadways yeah, are closed. And right. road, yeah. The road cutoffs and all kinds of things will be other elements that'll, that'll keep people from being able to do that. And then sometimes people, you know, in some cases in two working families, the, the wife or the husband is away and the, and the kids are, are stuck at home with them and you can't just, you know, abandon your six year old kid to go, you know, work. So those situations are associated yeah, with yeah. it as well. I actually was uh, doing training with uh, Georgia emergency management during the uh, snowmageddon probably what it was about three or four years ago. I got stuck on the freeway during that whole ice storm when Atlanta got frozen and everyone got stuck on the freeway. And, right. You know, I remember listening to the radio while I was stuck and hearing all the, the parents that were calling in the radios and, you know, they sent some of the school buses home with kids and some parents decided to walk and they got there while they got to the school, they were you know stuck at the school. And then, then to find out that their ch- child did get home and, you know, it was a communication nightmare and, right. you know, it's just a, you know, you can't plan every scenario and you know, we're not going to have a hundred percent execution of, you know, doing the right thing every time as you know, these responders and the communities respond. But the most important thing is the after action review. How do we do it better next time? Right. You know, and if it happens once it probably will happen again and let's do it better. But, you know, planning that thinking outside that box and thinking what's the next potential disaster, you know, they, you know, Atlanta's had a, quite a few things happen, you know, even just lo- recently with the airport. So, yeah. 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 It's endless. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? Um, probably the best way would just uh, email, phone call, social media. You know, we're, we're using all those aspects. And I personally, I'm at that, right at that cutoff of Generation X where I still like phone calls. <laughs> I prefer phone calls over emails and, and text messages. But definitely, you know, I, I prefer to pick up the phone and talk to people. And I think that, uh, the best way is it will be calling, you know, call me at 541-337-3608 on my cell phone. But 
just in case you need to get a hold of somebody or you know, traveling, and we go always call into our phone line at 541-855-463-3756. Be our uh, toll-free number to the office where you can catch any of us here. But but yeah, I think phone calls I, w- I prefer just because there's a lot more to learn about what people are trying to achieve um, than just, you know, via email. You get a lot more information from a talk sure. um, versus a uh, versus an email or a text message. But the reality is, is, you know, I think a lot of the emergency management people and first responders are probably the same nature because of the, the age. But with how busy everybody is, I find that a lot of people like emails too. So for us, it's, it's easier for people to get a hold of us always because now we know they want to talk. Right. It's always that, am I bugging somebody while they're in, the, you know, in a meeting or you know, am I calling on somebody when they're busy? But yeah, I think, and then you know, we found that social media um, using through Facebook and stuff, a lot of people, it surprises me how many people reach out to us through that means as well. Hmm. What's your website? Yeah www.deployedlogics.com. Perfect. And again, everybody will definitely have this stuff down in the show notes for you to grab. So if you're driving and you don't have a pencil or you're not able to write down, uh, you can always check it out at the website and, and uh, click on the links and we'll get you to there. All right. Well, is there anything else, JJ, that you'd like to add before you go? Yeah. No, I just uh, just want to say thank you for your for what you're doing and, and getting the word out there about not just products, but how people are responding and this kind of a format is definitely something that will help, I think, many emergency managers and, you know, first in general, first responders across the board, you know, covering different issues that are coming up. What I found is that I strongly believe that communication is probably the most prolific, you know, concepts that, you know, people in business need to understand is just, you know, how to reach out to people and get in touch and, and actually have that conversation versus, you know, not, you know, I always push my guys to make phone calls versus emails and texts because, you don't get all the information across through those other means. But even when I look at communication on a, the aspect of you know, emergency management, it's having those agencies, you know, the hospitals talking with emergency management office, with uh, emergency medical services, with Department of Transportation, and all those agencies working together, one on a city or, or a county level, um, and then statewide as well. But and ultimately, it's sharing that information about what products are working, but also what pitfalls they've come across. and. Mm-hmm when you see a community that really is, you know, functioning, you know, together integrally um, as one, it's amazing how many times you'll see agencies supporting each other across the, across the road, you know, where we have teams like in Charlotte, where Charlotte fire is helping Charlotte police and they're helping emergency management and the state level is helping them. When you have that kind of combined support, it's amazing how many people can actually borrow equipment. You know, not everyone needs to own, you know, a big semi-trailer full of shelters. You need to have, you know, a couple agencies with that and the, the partnerships and the MOAs that are shared and signed so that people have access to that equipment when they need it. Not everyone needs a 100 kW generator, but you need to have access to one. So if you know you have one element and another agency has the other element that you need, going back to that, you know, you know, borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbor mentality and having that shared response to help each other out and, you know, share product. You know, to me, it's, that's how we're going to see agencies getting the most stretch out of their, their grant funding and their budgets in the, in the coming years. So definitely, you know, I push that, you know, whether it's communicating and talking about, you know, the DLX rapid shelter, I hope that's the conversation that's happening and people are lending them to each other. But, but ultimately, you know, just people realizing what each other has so that when that disaster happens, they can make use of all that equipment that's available. Awesome, JJ. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Doug.